psalm speaks of God's wrath and hatred towards murderers, then you think the psalm is written by a murderer. David is aware both of his duty as a king, but also his need as a sinner for grace. Every single one of us inhabits that reality, both sinners, but also those, if we have believed, who are called to justice and to righteousness. And I invite you, if you haven't done so, turn with me to Philippians 4, as we continue to consider the third term in a list of things that we are called by the Apostle and really by the Holy Spirit to set our minds upon. We've, for several weeks, been considering the thought life of Christian disciples and these different key ideas that form something of a curriculum, things that we need to understand, to meditate upon, ultimately, in order that we might imitate them. I would advise you as well, if you weren't here this morning, bear in mind, next week we're going to have a guest pastor, Reverend David Schexnader. But this evening, we continue in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Hear together with me the word of the Lord. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time of thinking together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word. We ask that you would bless us this evening, work by your Holy Spirit. Give us holy attention, holy thinking. Give us a sincere and growing desire to be conformed to you. Father, please shape us, change us, even as it will be by your power that we are finally transformed and glorified in heaven. Even so, we ask that you would work that work now, that you would grow us in order that we might be more like Christ our Savior, the most blessed, the most beautiful, the most just. For in his precious name we pray, amen. So for the past two sermons, we've been looking at this third term, just, and we've seen already that the term that Paul uses here, the Greek term, depending on the context, can refer both to righteousness and to justice. And we've seen in the past that justice, really in order to be comprehended, needs to be thought about relative to others, typically in your community. It is actively involved in others. You can be a righteous person living on an island, but the practice of justice involves other people. And we've already seen that essentially... Justice is whatever morally conforms, is agreeable to the nature and the will of God for human beings. Now, where do we go to learn God's idea of what is just? It's one thing to say God is just. It's a different thing to know what is he like. And while the world may have all kinds of ideas, or you and I may have certain intuitions about righteousness and justice, we saw last week two worthy witnesses. We are to go to the precepts of the Old Testament law. They are consistent with the moral law throughout all time, the command to love, as confirmed by Jesus and Paul in the New Testament. And then we are to look at how the prophets actually apply those things in the life of Israel. And I speak again, especially to the youth here, you need to know the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. And not simply, though certainly, 
as a way of foreshadowing Jesus who was to come. That is important, essential, but also because the Old Testament gives us wisdom for living. I think the whole book of Proverbs speaking to us in that way. But on the other hand, it can be difficult to learn if all you have are kind of abstract statements. Arguably, in most industries, the best thing you could have is an apprenticeship. Someone who comes alongside of you, who actually shows you how to do the things that you need to do. Someone who can answer specific questions you have about that job. We had a member of our congregation here in the past. I know that many of you knew him. He taught uh, trombone. And I remember him mentioning that he had received a lot of pushback when he was teaching at ASU about wanting to keep essentially a medieval model of apprenticeship for the way that he taught. And yet his students consistently outperformed others. And the reason why some people wanted him to drop that, they said it wasn't efficient. And he said, no, no, other models are not as effective. And his interest was making trombonists. And so he used that model of apprenticeship. It was not as efficient in one sense. But here we come to think, when you learn justice and righteousness, you can read about precepts, but you will benefit greatly if you can look at people who are confirmed to be walking according them, putting them into practice. So who can you go to? Well, there are certainly people in our lives that we hope are doing that. But on the other hand, God in mercy has provided for us in the scripture certain examples, paragons of righteousness and justice. People who the text itself says were righteous or just as people can be in their fallen state. I want to be clear, all of these people were sinners. No one of them needed the righteousness of Christ credited to them less than any one of us. And all of those who walked according to true righteousness and justice did so by the Spirit working in and through them, though they live in the time before the special outpouring of the kinds of gifts we see in the New Testament and some of the wonderful aspects of the Holy Spirit's work in the New Covenant. Yet they were not walking by the flesh. They were walking according to faith. What it says, for instance, in Hebrews 11, verses 32 and 33, time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, or David, and Samuel and the prophets. These are Old Testament people who through faith conquered kingdoms and enforced justice. It was by faith and the working of the Holy Spirit that they were doing these things. And so we are called to observe and to imitate these paragons that we find. For instance, it says in Philippians 3.17, Brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Or 2 Thessalonians 3.7, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. Keep your eyes on them. How many of the persons who's, uh, who we lay our eyes upon are in fact exemplars. And I'll say plainly, much of the entertainment available, especially children as you get older, is not populated by mostly people who you want to imitate. And even in our own lives, the best of us are inconsistent. And so the Holy Spirit would lay before you this evening an exhortation, go into the word, identify those people whom God calls paragons of justice and righteousness, and seek to learn from them. I'm going to bring before you just a sampling of them tonight and apply a few of the 
ways that they exhibit justice and righteousness. But really, this is a call for you to make this something that you do regularly. Every child and every adult needs heroes, people that they look to to pattern themselves after. And the Christian has the best group to draw from, given to us in the word. And so tonight, what we're going to do is simply look at three, three in particular. I'll name them as we come to them, three different figures in the Bible. And first, turn with me to the book of Job. Each of these is going to be drawn from the Old Testament. Again, primarily because they tend to be less familiar to us. Book of Job, sometimes we focus on the sufferings of Job. If you know anything at all about Job, you know that he suffered. Or maybe we focus on his shortcomings. We know that he didn't react perfectly to his suffering. And that's a great comfort to us. Any one of us facing the kinds of things he faced, or one-tenth of them, is going to discover just how short our patience is, how weak our faith is, even if it's sincere. But because we focus on those things, it's easy to bypass the 50, 60, 70, or 80 years that came before. The text doesn't tell us how old he was. We know his kids were grown, but he had a whole life that preceded that, and he's singled out in part because he was exemplary. Listen to what it says in Job chapter 1, verse 8. Job 1, verse 8. We're taken up into the spiritual realm, and it says, And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. The Lord isn't saying he's perfect, but he's saying relative to the other millions of people on the planet, this one is preeminent for righteousness and justice. Well, then what about his life stood out to God? Please, the Lord, to see him walking in faith. Turn with me and look at chapter 29. It's sometimes the case that Christians become very familiar with the first chapters of Job, and then they discover it's a very long book, and it goes through a cycle of arguments, and they maybe hear sermons about the end. So you have the sufferings at the end, then you have the resolution, where the Lord comes and speaks. But they may not be as familiar with the middle portion, and chapter 29 contains one of the clearest statements of what Job's life was like before his suffering. Now, bear in mind, we know that he was extravagantly wealthy and powerful based on the kinds of things he suffered. But here, Job 29, beginning at verse 7, Job describes what his life was like before affliction. When I went out to the gate of the city, which was the place where the powerful people made decisions, when I prepared my seat in the square... And the young men saw me and withdrew, and the aged rose and stood. Okay, pause and picture that. The people with the most years and experience under their belt respect Job. Do they respect him just because of his raw power and wealth? And the young men feel like, we shouldn't be here, this is beyond us. They're making place for him. Verse 9, the princes refrained from talking and laid their hand on their mouth. And the voice of the nobles was hushed, and their tongues stuck to the roof of their mouth. 
When the ear heard, it called me blessed. And when the eye saw, it approved. Why? What was it that caused these people to feel so awestruck in the presence of Job? You think today when a movie star comes through, people sometimes have the same reaction. They can't speak right because this person can memorize lines and emote in a certain way. It's a skill, but that doesn't mean they have virtue and they should not be honored in accord as they tear down society through evil. What does he say they respected him for? Verse 12, because I delivered the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to help him, the blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me. That is, I assumed the responsibility of blessing that person. And I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. People were in awe because they know how it normally goes. The more power and the more wealth that individuals, whether male or female, amass, typically the less concerned they become for the weak of the world. And Job's point is not to be preferential, to give greater rights to the weak, but to show equality of love to all, to render to them what God has graciously granted to them, that they are image bearers. And even as he's a recipient of mercy, he desires to be merciful. He speaks of the widow's heart singing for joy. Now, none of us here, to my knowledge, is fabulously wealthy, and so you might be tempted to write off how this applies in your case. But within the past few years, I've been aware of different ways even members of this church have tried to walk out this kind of righteousness and justice. Justice here being a regard for the rights and the dignity of others, especially those who cannot defend them as well for themselves. For instance, I am aware of a family who has an aged or who had an aged family member. And as this person's mind lost its effectiveness, that person was taken advantage of by a scammer. You young ones who get, somebody signed me up for some thing, I don't know, I just know in the last 48 hours I've got about 100 texts on my phone trying to scam me. One of the reasons I should not have my phone number probably listed on our website. And so I've got all these things. And for you who are young, who have the full presence of your mind, it's just a minor nuisance. For others, there are wicked people trying to prey upon the aged and upon anyone who may not have a fully sound mind. And so this family that I'm aware of came alongside of that person after the person had been scammed out of a large sum in order to make sure that person had housing, to make sure that person had some kind of advocate to speak with the creditors, to work it out and to try, however possible, to go after the evildoers. Justice is not simply not intentionally violating other people, but it is a high regard and even a go help and find where people need help attitude. Look what it says in the very next verse, verse 14. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. We see what Job cares about is not appearing, again, wealthy or powerful. He would feel naked without righteousness and without justice. Verse 15, I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy, and I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. I searched out the cause. And when we read about this, 
The point is not simply to hold before us a moral standard. It must come first from recognizing that if Job had justice and righteousness at all, he is just a reflection, just a shadow of what exists in the heart of the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ. Of the tenderness of the compassion he has. When we see Jesus flipping tables and angry at his own people even, and the poor being taken advantage of in the temple, we serve a righteous and a just Lord who has come down to love the undeserving and the weak, even ourselves. And then we're called into that same kind of heart by his Holy Spirit who transforms us. Verse 17, I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. Job does not seem like a weak man. I broke the fangs. He doesn't take it sitting down. He's not light about it. How much more does the Lord do these things Psalm 68, verse 5. Psalm 68, 5 says, Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. He may use instruments like Job, but he is the source of these things. Verse 6, God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. And even here, and we'll continue to encourage a culture of this, Many people have lended hands in a whole variety of ways for those who are on the knife edge of being put into foster care or who needed adoption. These are ways that we come to exhibit in our community the very things spoken of in Job. More could be said, but the point here is to draw your attention to Job as something to study, to move through the book and examine this. Now, if women, and I see many women here, if women can learn from a man like Job, then men can also learn from godly women. You think of Paul in a place in Timothy where he praises this young pastor's mother and grandmother for having discipled him. And there are places in Scripture where certain women are held up and we see what does it look like for a woman to be godly. You think of Abigail, one of David's wives. That's a problem with righteousness on one side, but she herself, a righteous woman, a just woman. And so you could go and examine them, but who better to draw our attention to than the woman of Proverbs 31? I invite you to turn there. Proverbs 31, the last chapter of Proverbs. As you turn there, I'll mention, someone encouraged me when I was pretty young, sometime between 10 or 13. There are 31 chapters in Proverbs. Why don't you read one a day? throughout the month, and every other month you read Proverbs 31, and it's a wonderful way to do that. More lately, for the last few years, I have used, Crossway makes a, a version where the whole book is separated out into kind of small chunks, so you can really focus on small parts. But in Proverbs 31, there is a woman who is to be considered. And I want to be clear, the woman I have First in mind is not perhaps the woman you're thinking of, the woman, the ideal described in verses 10 through 31. That's not the woman that I'm first drawing your attention to. Rather, look with me at verse 1. The words of King Lemuel, an oracle that his mother taught him. The words that his mother taught him. In other words, Proverbs 31 is a distillation of wisdom that was passed on to this king by his mother. 
One commentator puts it this way. This passage is traditionally understood as being addressed to women, but is more accurately spoken by a woman to a man so that he could know the character and potential character of a good wife before marriage and value and praise his wife for her virtuous character once married. But that's not all that she does. She tells her son, this king, this is the way that a king should act. Among other things, she speaks against drunkenness. But I would draw your attention here to this other aspect of justice and righteousness, verse 8 and 9. Here she's declaring the duties of rulers. She says, verse 8 and 9, Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. How tempting must it be for a powerful person not to do that? Not to, because who is he or she, whoever this leader is, defending these people from? Other powerful people. Not just some other destitute person, but very often other powerful people. And that takes courage. It runs against the grain of our fallen condition. The second half of Proverbs 31, probably more familiar to many here, portrays a woman of outstanding integrity, outstanding justice and righteousness. And I just want to draw your attention to one example. There are many in this section. Verse 27. Verse 27, describing this ideal wife. She does not eat the bread of idleness. Now, of course, the same can be said of men. There's not a double standard. She does not eat the bread of idleness. And so this mother is warning her son, desire a woman who reflects a zeal to provide value for her family and her community. This isn't simply about profit. It's about value. Value comes in many different forms, not simply monetary. If you go through the passage and you see what is she busy doing, she is cooking, sure, says she rises early to make meals. But then it also says that she is going out and inspecting property and buying it. And then it says that she's weaving and also selling garments to the merchants. And so she's not pictured just cooped up decorating. That is not the soul of her life. And I'm not, if you like to decorate, sure. But is it not a temptation for many people to conflate where they're at with being effective for their calling? That is not the whole of it. In fact, it sheds light on passages in the New Testament. I don't ask you to turn there. It's very brief. But 1 Timothy 5.14, the apostle says, I would have younger widows marry, bear children, and manage their households. Now, what is he saying here? When he says that I would have them to marry, bear children, manage their households, There was the possibility, especially with the church taking up an offering for widows, for them to have essentially an income without needing to work. And he says, notice, manage their households. He doesn't say simply remain in their homes. That's not the primary point. She will not eat the bread of idleness. Manage the household. In fact, the word household here is the root. You can't build too much on this, but it's the root from which we get economics, oikonomos. She is to be about providing an increase in value for her family, her community. And that's confirmed in the very same passage. Right before that, Paul says, Otherwise they learn to be idlers, going from house to house, not only idlers, but gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. 
The same could be said of some idle man. But why? What's the point of all this work? See verse 20. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. The idea here that there are people who, in God's providence, sincerely cannot generate sufficient income to meet the needs of themselves or perhaps their dependents. So it's not a bleeding heart that just wants to let others be idlers. There's a balance here. On the other hand, there's a generosity and not assuming that we know all the facts. This is one of the works of the deacons as they demonstrate both justice and righteousness. To be charitable and hopeful, but then also to search out situations, to be generous. And her work is not simply to have more and more wealth. It is to do good in her community. Again, my point is not to elaborate all that can be known or just to assign that to the the girls here. But for all of us to understand that the Lord has provided Proverbs 31 as a clear picture of what he desires in a person. Finally, I invite you to turn to the book of Ruth. The little beautiful book of Ruth in the Old Testament. Literarily, it's one of the most distinct and beautiful segments of the Old Testament, a quaint story, but full of lessons. A great deal could be said about Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. They all have lessons to contribute. But for our purposes this evening, I want to simply illustrate justice and righteousness as it works out in the life of Boaz. Look at me at chapter 2, verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. The fact that it's translated here, worthy man, is, it may not be quite so clear in Hebrew. Sometimes translators have to make a decision because a word can go multiple ways. This is one of those instances. The vast majority of times that this Hebrew word is used in the Bible, the vast majority, it is morally neutral. By that I mean it's neither necessarily good or bad. It's used mainly for two things. Someone who is very wealthy and therefore powerful. Or somebody who is very courageous. But that courage is generally shown on the field of battle. And you can have a person who's not a believer who's very courageous. It's simply a powerful person. That's the main idea. Now when it says he's powerful, you think that this is a man who, first, he's a man living in a time when women have relatively little recourse, even compared to now. Not only is he a man, but he is a rich man. He owns the fields that everybody is working in. By contrast, who is Ruth? Children, if you're not familiar with Ruth, Ruth is a woman who's not simply a woman, but also a childless widower. And so very unlikely to be chosen to ever be married again. She may be presumed barren, And on top of that, she's a foreigner in a time and a culture where people were very aware of cultural, ethnic, and religious differences and generally sought to keep that distinction solid. So there is a tremendous difference in power between them. But then see Boaz as he interacts with this woman in verse 8. It's the first time that he meets her while she's gleaning in a field. You picture the workers go through the field and they do a first gathering of the harvest. And the Lord had set up a kind of safety net 
where the poor could go through the field after, and whatever was dropped, the poor could gather up. So it's a kind of minimum work that they do. They go out, they gather the food, and they bring it back to their family. They're not going to get rich off of that, but they're not going to starve. Now, Ruth is in the field because she needs it. She doesn't have other work, or she wouldn't be there. And Boaz meets her. It says, verse 8 and following, Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now, listen, my daughter. And even notice the chasteness of that language. Here's a powerful man. He, she was beautiful, apparently. And he goes out of his way to speak in a non-threatening way to her. He says, listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I'm a foreigner? Clearly her experience had been mistreatment to this point. But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you've done. And a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I'm not one of your servants. And at the mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here, eat some bread, dip your morsel in the wine. And so she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves. Don't reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and don't rebuke her. She didn't, in a sense, deserve all of that. He's being generous as a recipient of grace. He's being kind and protecting her. But also, there are other layers to this. By providing a surplus for her, remember, he's protecting her from the young man. He creates a kind of workplace environment where she's in less danger. There are rules. But not only does he do that, but he provides her with enough to minimize, as much as we may, temptation for her to seek her income, her food, in any other way. And so there's tremendous love here. But I want you to understand, this is not simply because Boaz is a good guy. He is carrying out justice because justice is rendering to people what is due to them. And God in mercy granted certain benefits to people, including the foreigner. What it says in Leviticus 19, verse 34. Leviticus 19, 34. The stranger who resides with you shall be treated as one of you, as one of your citizens, You shall love them even as you love yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Because the Lord conferred upon those foreigners passing through Israel these blessings, therefore Boaz had a duty to be this way, and by faith he was doing so. Even if it meant that people would look askance at him, not like what he was doing. Why did the Lord even have those rules in Israel? Well, on one level it was about providing a beautiful Society, relatively, in that time. But also as a picture of the kingdom of the Lord to come. We have, in this sense, a better than Boaz. 
Is it not the case that every one of us was in a more, more miserable condition than Ruth? Every one of us was in a position... I'm not thrown off. Every one of us was in a condition where we are not able to provide for ourselves the things that we need. Every one of us is in a position where, by nature, we are worthy of being despised. Every one of us is in a position of weakness, and yet Christ comes to us and provides bread, wine. He says, take, eat, sit right next to me. How does he justify this generosity to sinners? It's because God has chosen to grant us rights in Christ, not because we deserve it. If you have been made a recipient of grace through faith, then you are to do likewise. Justice for us as the Christian community cannot be as simple as a mathematical equation. And sometimes people think of it that way. You know, it's just squaring the moral laws of the universe dispassionately. No, it is a passionate zeal for personal well-being that comes from a personal God to render the rights that God has bestowed and even the grace that he chooses to pour out in the world. For us, this doesn't justify us, but it is part of the way that we exemplify the truth of our conversion. 3 John verse 11 says, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Children, the desire sincerely to live according to righteousness and justice, it doesn't come from you. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. And seek the Holy Spirit to work it more in you. By way of conclusion, I simply want to encourage you, grow to know the figures in your Bible. Ask yourself, how did God form them? And then believe God is forming you also. And then, of course, ultimately, rely upon the Lord, who is our justice. Let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for calling us in such a lofty way to demonstrate the character of Christ the righteousness of God, which is eternal, to be made manifest in time. We come up so short, Lord, but we ask that you would more and more transform us, that going from glory to glory, we would reflect to others your character. And while we fall so far short in contrast to you, yet we desire, like Job, to stand out from the world, that when people come among us, they would notice that there is a tremendous difference that we have a high regard for the humanity of others, that they are image bearers, and that we have a motive that is different than the world, ultimately to glorify you, to show gratitude for the grace that we've received. We pray that you would work these things in us for your glory, for we pray them in Christ's name. Amen.